I'm Jancis Robinson. Welcome to JancisRobinson.com, the podcast. Blind Ambition is a heartwarming, award-winning documentary film that's been shown around the world. It's about four economic migrants from Zimbabwe who arrived in South Africa with nothing but the clothes on their backs. They had zero experience of wine or fine dining and didn't initially know each other, but went on to become the respected sommeliers at Cape Town's top four restaurants. South African journalist Erica Platter alerted me to their story and wrote a fascinating article about them on jancisrobinson.com in 2016. By 2017, they decided to have a go as Team Zimbabwe at the World Wine Tasting Championships held in France each year. But they couldn't afford to get there. So we organized a crowdfunding initiative for them on jancisrobinson.com, which ended up being oversubscribed. Both Erica and I thought this would make the perfect subject for a film. So I wrote to everyone I could think of who might be interested. In the end, an Australian outfit who'd already made a film about wine in China called Red Obsession got really excited about it and set off for Cape Town at almost a moment's notice to film the guys training for the competition just a few weeks before it was held. They also filmed their humble origins in Zimbabwe. One of the most charismatic of the four Zimsoms, Tinasha Nyamadoka, shared more of his story with me. He rose to become sommelier at Cape Town's most fashionable restaurant, the Test Kitchen, and has recently been touring the US with his own brand of South African wine, Kumusha. My name is Tinashe Nyamudoka, and I'm founder and owner of Kumusha Wines. Tell us, Tinashe, about your early life. You know, my parents split up when I was very young, probably three years, uh, and I ended up on my father's side. And, you know, for the early years were quite stressful because my father hadn't remarried. So I was living with my aunt and he was working. So they sent me to boarding school, which wasn't really, really fun. So I think around the age of five, six, I moved in with my aunt and we stayed with my dad growing up in Avondale. And it was a middle-aged family. I think we grew up in the Zim, which was still a bit fine in the 90s. I grew up in the 90s, being born in 85. And going to primary school as a day scholar. But what I remember vividly was going to the rural home. Because my father, every holiday, would send me, maybe sometimes by bus alone, to my grandfather and grandmother in the village. And... I'll spend most of my holidays there. Uh, so I spend a lot of time with my grandmother and my grandfather. You know, my grandfather would tend the fields, grandma, the gardens. And that's the sort of life I remember. Having fun in the mountains and sometimes heading cattle and, you know, playing with the kids, swimming in the river. And I sort of did my primary school up to grade seven in Avondale. Then I did high school in a boarding school closer to my rural home where my father learned and there I spent four years. Uh, after that, uh, did my A-levels at another school, which was closer to Arare. And yeah, I finished my A-levels in 2003. My dad had passed on in 2002. And, you know, life really kind of changed that because my aunts had moved on to the United States. My other aunt had moved on to the U.S. I wasn't staying with my mom. So it was a really sketchy period and touchy period in my life because I didn't have someone older to really direct me. And I, I made a decision not to go to university, mostly because there wasn't anyone financing my tuition. And 
as a young boy at that time, you know, you kind of have the freedom. So school wasn't in my sight. So I went on to work at a supermarket. I just walked in and said, I'm looking for a job. I started working in the supermarket. They employed me packing the shelves uh, and packing behind the tills until the manager kind of looked in my grade. So I, I, I can't say I was an A-plus student. I was pretty much... You know, a good student, got a few A's. Uh, so I, I'd really done well in my secondary and A-level and decided, you know what, I think you're really wasting your, your time. Yeah, I'm going to put you in this uh, program, which is a junior management program. So this company was part of the Mikos, it's the TM Supermarkets, which is equivalent to pick and pay in South Africa. And I think I joined there when I was around 19 18. So they, they put me in, in that first program, uh, you know, managing sections, working in the bakery, working in the, in the whole department store. And it was fun. I was still young, uh, earning a bit of money, but still while progressing in, in that environment. And this is running up to around 2005 and worked until 2008. That's where, you know, life took a turn. And what happened then? Uh, I think it's the toughest year in Zimbabwean history, especially with the economics, the politics, and, you know, the, the supermarkets. I was working in the supermarkets. Everything just dried up. Like, chances, literally, you couldn't find a bar of soap on the shelves. There was a point where you'd go to work, but your monthly pay wasn't even enough for a day's trip to, to oh. go to. But, but for some reason, you'd find people went to work every day. And there was rampant inflation, wasn't there? It, it was crazy. It was going crazy. But the, the fortunate part about me working in the supermarket, because, you know, you'd get all those daily cooking oil, sugar that would come to the supermarket, maybe sparingly. So that's how we survived. You know, you'd get first-hand information that the deliverers that are coming, you tell all your friends and families, you, you kind of hoard a bit then sell on the black market. That's how we sort of survived. But for me, it wasn't really it wasn't really what I wanted. So I had a friend who was staying in Cape Town and he said, you know what, you can come over to Cape Town, we'll figure it out. Uh, and I never left the country. I just packed my clothes and just decided I'm going to Cape Town. I, I had a few savings. Uh, Fortunately, I had a passport, so I took the long journey by bus from Harare, got into Johannesburg, frightened as hell, because, you know, when you zoom and they tell you Johannesburg is dangerous and you see all this crime and all these statistics, I was very scared when I got into Johannesburg. I didn't even leave the station. Then took another bus overnight to Cape Town, and my friend actually was waiting for me, but you know, you'd hear stories later on of how other people would just disappear, you know, and, and people ended up in the streets having nowhere to go. They've traveled all that far. They don't even have money left. Uh, yeah, then I settled into Cape Town, but it was almost of a, a, a culture shock in a way. Things seemed to run very, very well in Cape Town. So I had just come on a visitor's visa. So when my money started to run dry, I'm looking for a job now. And Obviously, the first place I look for is in a supermarket. I vividly remember I was staying at a hostel. It was four of us in a room. There was two guys, Congolese guys, working in a bakery. I said, you know what, I'm going to a local spa. I'm going to look for a job. This is what I was doing in Zimbabwe. I've got my certificates. And, and they laughed, you know. And they told me there's no way you're going to be a, a black manager in a supermarket in South Africa. So I didn't understand why until I got there. And you could tell, you know, <laughs> these guys were right. Uh, I had the interview. There was a Portuguese guy running that spa. He said, 
know, it's impressive CV, but unfortunately the position you want, I can't give you. But I'm willing to offer you a baker's position. And because of desperation, that time I didn't have any money. I just said, you know, I'll start from here. And it was the coldest winter to date in Cape Town, 2008. And I would wake up 4 a.m., would be at the bakery, baking bread, making sure that you, you've got your bread out by 7 p.m. when the store opens. And, you know, it was a tough time in that, you know, you, you get the reality that you've got no choice. You just have to start all over again. And for some reason, I kind of took it upon myself. I worked there for three months and it was fun because these Congolese guys knew how to bake bread but their English was very poor. So the whole idea was they teach me to bake bread. I teach them English and it, it was, it was fun. Mm. It, it was fun. And, but I soon realized the money wasn't so great. I think I was getting paid eight rand an hour by then. And my friend who I was staying with was working in restaurants and he would come back home with these tips. And I'm, I'm calculating his daily tip is even more than enough than my weekly wage. So I said, you know, I'm in the wrong place. I need to get into restaurants. And the challenge was I'd never worked in a restaurant before. Uh, I'd Restaurant culture was so foreign to us in Zim. I never grew up going to restaurants other than fast food. So this really culture of restaurants wasn't in me. So we, we kind of devised working on a, what do you call it, resume. So we kind of tailored it. And my friend said, okay, just put me on this reference. Say you've been working at this and this and this. And I would walk the waterfront, I would walk uh, Camp Bay, just dropping CVs day by day and get called for interviews. Now, that was <laughs> the funny part because I walk up there, they're asking questions. Oh, you've worked at so-and-so. Oh, that's great. So tell us what uh, five Chardonnays from Stellenbosch. Now I'm stuck. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, you, you've been selling Fogra. What's Fogra? Now I'm stuck. So uh, all the time, I, I just didn't get it. But what I used to do now, after finishing the bakery shift around 12, in my area, there was this five-round internet store for 30 minutes. And I remember then there was this site called Gumtree where you put CVs and look for employment. And there I actually put a CV that I'm working in a bakery. And one day the Roundhouse restaurants rings me up. Oh, we're coming, we're doing group interviews. Come on, on this day. I got there on that day. I think there were about 50 or 60 interviewees on that day. And we used to, we're getting, coming into groups of 10 as group interviews. And I'm sitting there and, you know, everyone is, is, is sort of experienced talking about their experience. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'm in the wrong place. And he comes to me now. And uh, fortunately enough, so I was worried, like, because even on that country, I'd put another tailored CV. So I wasn't sure which one he had picked. They said, oh, Tinashe, you're working at a bakery. You're baking bread at spa. I'm like, yeah. But I just jumped on from them. I said, I applied and you guys called me. I don't have any restaurant experience. I literally know there's white wine and red wine. The rest, I don't know. But if you guys are looking for someone competent, someone eager to learn and someone you can teach, I'm your guy. And I got the job. <laughs> but later on, I realized, you know, they were actually looking for people without prior experience because they had this program they called Let's Sell Lobster. Let's Sell Lobster. <laughs> yeah, which was hiring people without previous experience. Uh, so we were the first intake, so more of like guinea pigs. So I was just probably at the right time at the right place. And you must have worked hard and impressed your bosses because it wasn't too long after that, was it, that you were taken on by the one and only, a very smart 
restaurant there. Yes. So what got me interested into wine was I never worked in a restaurant and I didn't start on the floor. I started polishing cutler and I was very frightened going into the dining room because I would literally just go drop food, run back in the, into the kitchen and be comfortable polishing glasses and plates. But it used to amaze me how I went into the dining room. I'm seeing people enjoying drinking wine. And when we're talking about wine, when they were teaching us about wine, all the history and, and what was very peculiar was, so they taught us wine resembling it to, to animals like the big five. So they would say, okay, Cabernet Sauvignon is like an elephant. You know, elephant is the king of the jungle, big, thick skin, elegant, walks small, structured. I was like, okay, I know the big five, so this must be easy to learn. Uh, <laughs> so, and they picked that up, that I was like really intelligent. I could articulate very well. Uh, and I was very eager to learn. So they, they put me on the floor and I just got consumed with this. And I, and I figured out if I learned wine, I would get an opportunity to be a waiter and make more money. So that was the initial. It wasn't for enjoyment at all. It was just purely to make more money. When did you start to enjoy wine? I think when I moved to the one and only, that's where I saw the, the whole profession of sommelier because there was a group sommelier. There was sommeliers in Andre and Eric. There was wine butlers and we were starting as the wine waiters. And I realized that there's a real career progression I could make, make a, a career out of wine. And by that time, I'd, I'd enjoyed a glass of wine for the first time in the roundhouse. And I was, I was drinking wine at home, even going on my off days, going into a supermarket and just pick up a bottle and go share it with, with friends back at our hostel. And most of those guys were drinking beer, but I was just drinking wine and, and just fell in love with it then. And it was only four years, I think, after you joined the one and only that you were representing them in a wine competition, wasn't it? Yes. And yes, doing so. really well. Yes. So I got there. Andre Becker really took me under his wings and taught me quite a while. So I spent time in uh, Gordon Ramsay, who I only saw twice in the year. <laughs> uh, then Ruben Riffo took over. And by that time, I uh, enrolled in the Cape Wine Academy. I was also doing WSET courses. And it was in 2013 where the competition came about. It was the Interhotel Challenge. So the whole idea was the hotels in Cape Town had to put forward a, a wine steward and an upcoming chef. And we competed with uh, one of my close friends who has been in the movie with me, Malvin, in that first same year. And I think, you know, you know, when you go into a competition and you check the playing field and you feel like, you know, way better than them, you're confident. And I just know that competition in especially when it was announced I was the winner, you know, the whole room stood to applause. And it was a very, very proud moment for me. And probably was the start of opening the doors to come because that's where the oyster box came knocking after, I, you know, a bit of mentioning the Condé Nast magazine as one of the young people to watch in 2014. So this was Oyster Box was, was the next restaurant you worked at, was it? Yes. By the time I left one and only, I was sommelier in Nobu. Then Oyster Box hired me as the head sommelier. And it was, yeah, it was almost a peculiar move because, you know, Durban, especially the KZN, is not known for wine. People were really questioning why you're going to, to the Oyster Box. And for me, I think at that time, I really didn't have direction of what I wanted to do in life. And I remember even at the one and only, I was struggling to go past the sommelier position. 
And I was still debating if wine is it what I want. At that time, I was also doing a big accounting degree. I was already in my fourth year. So I was just torn between. And I think when I went to Durban, I really felt, you know, accounting is not going to be for me. I'm not that guy for spreadsheets and, you know, crunching numbers. And I dropped out of my accounting degree with three modules to finish. Uh, and I just took on wine and it wasn't busy, but it gave me time to reflect. And if I go back to my journals, everything that I'm doing now, it dates back to then. I remember writing down, you know, what in a few years time, I want to start a company, wine company. I didn't know in what form, but I just felt, and, uh, you know, I would go around, ask people, trying to convince them that there's opportunity. But the good thing is I would write it in my journal and which is going back to those pages really gives me satisfaction in that what I was envisioning back then is really happening now. But you didn't presumably have in your journal, I want to join a Zimbabwean wine tasting team (laughs) in the World Wine Tasting Championships. Not at all. Not at all. I didn't even know there was that competition. (laughs) How did that come about? Uh, So the connection was when I was still in Noble at the one and only restaurant. Luke Dale Roberts used to come with his family and we just made a a good rapport there. So when I moved to Durban and he was looking for a sommelier, I was the first person he called and I said, you know what, I would love to work for the Test Kitchen, the number 28 best restaurant in the world. It it was a no-brainer. And the best in Africa, wasn't it, for five years running? I mean, I went there. It was a wonderful, really special place. And it's amazing that you you, you became head sommelier there, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. And it, it came, even though, you know, it, it was a tough financial decision because I'm coming from the big hotel, which have the financial muscle. But it, it, looking back, is one of those moments where you said, you know, you're not thinking about financial, but you're thinking about what you get from there. And I joined 2015. And by that time, I'd met Joseph. He was still in Ribic Castle, but he had joined La Colombe a year earlier before me. So Joseph was an, another Zimbabwean refugee who became yes. a, a top sommelier, right? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So he was working at La Colombe. Then he enters into the South African Tasting Championship and he makes it. And we're all, wow, this guy is traveling to France and all. And all of us took interest and wanted to enter the competition. 2016, I didn't enter. I think I was away in Zimbabwe when the competition happened. But 2017, I did enter. So did uh, a whole host of Zimbabweans. And what was interesting about that year was in the top 10, you had three Zimbabweans. And in the top 15, you actually had 14. And we always were fighting for just that one position to be the outsider of the Team South Africa. And that's where Jean Vicent Ridon, who was the conveyor of the competition, said, guys, You've got enough talent for you guys to to make a team. If you can get funding, I'll sort out the paperwork and you guys can get training. And that's the formation of Team Zimbabwe. And Erica had written an article which she posted on your site. And for some reason, I think you got in touch with her asking Erica, you know, that this article has popped up on my site. What happened to these guys? And she says, oh, actually, you know what? They're forming a team in Zimbabwe. They want to go to France, but they're looking for funding. Maybe you can do something to help. And, you know, you set up a crowdfunding for us. And the, the response was just so overwhelming. You remember me and the rest of the guys would be on our phone looking at, you know, the donations coming in and it's just creeping, 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 creeping. I think we raised almost 8,200 pounds in a month. 
raised more than you needed, more yeah, than the target. More, yeah, more than the target. And it was just amazing how the power of just being in restaurants, most of the people is either they'd met us in restaurants and, you know, we'd had lovely dining experiences there all over the world. And that just appreciation for me was a sign of how powerful wine can be. You four who represented Zimbabwe in the World Wine Tasting Championships, you'd never tasted wine in Zimbabwe, had you? No, no, uh, definitely not. I, and, I, I knew there was wine, but I'd never tasted. Yeah, yeah. never drank and, it. And um, all of you had started off as economic refugees in South Africa with very, very low paid, poor status jobs, really, hadn't you? Yeah. Why, yeah. Why, why do you think it is that the four of you just had this wine talent? You know, once you're an immigrant, you you have to like really punch above the waters to really survive abroad. And and it, it goes everywhere, not immigrants, just in South Africa. But I think as an immigrant, first of all, you have to really work hard. And what you're doing exactly is really spotting opportunities, you know, where you can really make a, a living. And it so happened that the hospitality was so welcoming to us in South Africa in terms of easy access to jobs. You know, I stand to be corrected, but when we got into the industry, now it's, it's, it's full of, you know, majority blacks working there. But I remember when I when I started in the industry, it was all full of whites, students just getting money elsewhere. And we were there and we did well as Zimbabweans in restaurant because we didn't have another off day. We didn't work three days. We worked the whole full week, even taking double shifts. And in that, as in nature where... You, we always curious and we always learning where where we found the opportunities. We kind of took it and left whatever we were doing before and just said maybe we can make a living out of this because this is this is what we can possibly do with our status. There's nothing else, and and I think for me that's what ended in it. Why are we good tasters? Maybe it's the schooling we got, or maybe it's just good memory. Uh, I think it was it was part of the question that Erica Plata posed when he was saying why all of a sudden there's top sommeliers in, in top restaurants in South Africa. But I think it's got to do with a bit of the education we got, which we're grateful, and articulation and just the desire to be where you are and do the best you can in, in those circumstances. What was your reaction when you heard that some people were going to make a film about you at the World Wine Tasting Championships. Yeah, it was, it was, first of all, we didn't believe it. It was like, okay, we're just four guys, you know, we've got a story to tell, but is it big enough to, to be movie star? But for some reason, Erica Platter said it, guys, you guys are going to make a film one day. And, and it so happened. So it took a while for us to really think it was going to be serious. But for me, I'd watched uh, Red Obsession looking for any wine material I could get, any line. So I came across Red Obsession. And when I saw it was the same directors doing this, then I said, okay, guys, this is really serious. And we had a phone call with uh, Wari Cross and Rob Cole, the, the directors. And sooner than later, they were in Cape Town with the whole camera crew. And we said, okay, <laughs> this is now serious. Yeah. Uh, were you pleased with the film? Do you think they got the tone right? I, for one, was pleased. Uh, Obviously, you know, it's the first time in my life I had to share that in-depth about my life and, and really open up. And, you know, it, it, it takes a lot. But I think that the two directors were very good at that, getting words out of your mouth and really getting to the marrow, not just the bone. So 
you know what? I'm happy that the story has to be shared. Uh, not that I want any fame or to be famous or so, but I just, I just feel I had the obligation for my story to be told in order to touch someone else or inspire someone else. So I, I'm really happy with how the film came about and hopefully it, it goes to show everywhere and touch a lot of lives. It's done very well and it's been very moving, I think, for a lot of people. And it's done a lot of good for the reputation of, of refugees and immigrants generally, I think. Exactly. Yeah. And the, I'm so glad they went and filmed in Zimbabwe itself and those lovely scenes of you and your grandfather. They're very, very touching. Yeah, it is probably one of the most touching scenes. And because he died when last year, I uh, never got to watch the film. But every time I went back, it would be like, ah, oh, wait, you came with those. Tinashe came with the, with the Mulungus, you know, filming. And What's a Mulungus? <laughs> Mulungu is like a white Murungu. So we call them Murungu, which is oh. <laughs> a white person in a sense. And the guys uh, set up... Uh, a drone and you know it was making those sound and even up to now people said you know Tinashe brought those people who brought that thing which was flying in the air <laughs> maybe they were here to bomb us so no it was amazing man and I always go climb that mountain whenever I'm, I'm in Zimbabwe it just gives me a sense of place uh, and a healing. You want to make wine there don't you? Yeah busy exploring already uh so it's 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 in the pipeline it's not a dream already so hopefully in the next few years i'll be you know pressing wine from my grandfather's homestead but that you haven't remained on the restaurant floor have you you've you've achieved another of your ambitions yeah so i left in 2020 just before covid and i really wanted to explore the wine industry and especially for me so when i realized that when i was studying wine I enjoy more of the economics and business side of wine. But in nature, especially in South Africa at the moment, you know, I think all wine studies are more to do with viticulture, viniculture, and being a sommelier. And that really impacted me a lot because not, not all of us want to understand the chemistry and, you know, the stainless steel oaking and stuff. I enjoy the selling, the communication of wine, and there wasn't such space for me. And when I looked at the guys before me who were sommeliers, they sort of, you know, did the sommelier. But after that, you know, nothing ever happened. And, and I always say, you know, the sommelier profession is, is not much more different from being a sports star. You know, you're going to hit your prime years where you've got the attention and the knowledge. But with time, you know, it's, it has to be involving where new blood has to come in. And I felt for my brothers, especially black brothers who, who came before me, when they hit that ceiling, they didn't have anywhere to go. And now they would go back to old jobs that as being waiters. But when I thought the white counterparts who were sommeliers, they went on to progress to open distribution businesses, starting wine businesses. So I think with Komosha, obviously it became a business, but it's still a mission for me where I wanted to open up the space especially for the people coming through. And I get that every day in the inbox, someone saying, okay, we want to bottle our own wine. How do we do that? And I keep on telling them, you know what? Not everyone is going to bottle wine. The wine value chain is so vast. You might be good in wine writing. You might be good in retail. You might be good in distribution. But there, there wasn't a blueprint for that. There wasn't an example. So for me, I think the most driving force was that. 
of course, now I'm more into production, but with that, I'm learning a lot about distribution. I'm learning a lot about export. Now I'm in Minnesota, I'm in America on the road, you know, selling and distribution. And, and for me, it's, it's what we want. I think, you know, the young blacks want those sort of tangible examples of someone really being a success. And that's why I'm bent on making this Kumusha product, Kumusha wines into a success so people can learn from it. Did you encounter much prejudice on your way up? I mean, you're sort of top of the tree now, but in the South African wine uh, society. Yeah, it was. It was a lot. You know, there's always self-doubt and people questioning because I'm not a fully fledged winemaker. I, I'm now encroaching into winemaking. So the traditional guys will be like, okay, what is this guy doing? Pretending to be a winemaker, uh, not making wine. You know, you don't want to, to take notice of it, but sometimes because you're a wine professional, I, I mean, I, I'm more wine is about integrity. And that's why I've set on saying, Wherever I go, I'm not a fully fledged winemaker. I'm not pretending to be one, but I want a space in the wine industry. And wine is not all about the winemaking. Even wine in a bottle, winemaking is just a small percentage. But the good wines are blended in the in the cellar. And so it was always fighting against that. But interestingly enough, now they start to ask, oh, why is this guy doing it? Now they're asking, how am I doing it? Because it's, it's, it's just getting bigger and bigger, you know, they still, the form of, of the prejudice now is much more institutionalized. I, I can't really prove it. You know, how can I prove that I'm trying to get into retail? I can't get into retail. And, you know, all the, the decision-making people in the retail are all white. So if I can't get, if they told me my brand is not good enough, what other reason can I attach it to? But I can't really say it's, it's that. So it's, it's kind of institutionalized that. You know, for me, what, what's important is to create our own spaces as Blacks and and then integrate from there. Well, you, your wines have been accepted abroad, haven't they? I mean, I've tasted some of them. I'm really impressed as I think, yeah. uh, you know, I've written some enthusiastic tasting notes on them. Uh, and how long are you spending in the US? I'm here for two months. So Oof. I've come in Minnesota. I've probably go through 10 states. And yeah, it's, it's, it's my first time in the US and um, I'm really taking it in and it's it's a very challenging market, but it has been accepting of my wine. Yeah, I'm really grateful. Kumusha is the brand. What what does it mean? So Kumusha is a Shona word. It means your roots, uh, your origin, your home. And for me, when we're now studying wine, the most difficult part was associating fruits and flavors. Even up to now, I've never seen a black currant tree, <laughs> but I'm supposed to, to pick up these flavors. So they didn't really come natural to me. And I used to go to the supermarket fruit and veg section just to familiarize myself with the fruits. But what was so really changing in my wine appreciation was when I started to associate fruits and flavors in my wine with what I grew up eating back in Zimbabwe. It, it so made sense to me that at that time, I was reading the book Liquid Memory by Jonathan Nozietta. So there is a part where he says, you know, we always say wine of origin is where the wines is being made and the history of that place. But what if you've never been there? What about wine of origin can be where the wine is taking you? And it really resonated with me because when I was smelling a glass, it was taking me back home first. Then I'd say, okay, so in, in my school, in my testing exams, I'd made a whole parallel vocabulary. So I had 
notes of, of the Zimbabwean fruits I, I grew up tasting. For instance, I would say if I smell hute, which is like a water berry, you find it mostly along the rivers in Zimbabwe. I used to associate it with the Pinot Noir. So if I smell the water berry, I'll say, okay, this is a Pinot Noir. Okay, what do they say the Pinot Noir in European times? Okay, mulberry, whatever, cherry. You'd find out most of my tasting exams are distinctions. And that's the same thing we used at the Blind Tasting Championship with my Zimbabwean brothers because we are associating fruits and flavors we grew up eating. And it made wine much more enjoyable because I'm not picking up a glass trying to find what's in there. Now what's in the glass is finding me. Do you still use any of the big five animals when in your tasting notes? Yeah, I still do, especially when I'm teaching, you know, when I go, especially in Africa and I'm doing these tastings where my wines are. And I, I always bring that up because it really stuck with me and it resonates with, with most of the guys. So I still use it quite a lot. Yeah, it was quite funny. Yes, I think, well, it does seem funny to me, but it probably seems funny to a lot of people that People in England say, oh, blackcurrants, gooseberries, blah, blah, blah. Um, do you teach wine then? I think I much more of my teaching is, is on the job, especially when I'm at work. So now I consult to restaurants, even for my former boss. And my teaching has always been trying to get the people to taste in a more natural way, not looking for these exotic fruits. You know, uh, my teaching is all about understanding the wine structure how the wine is making you feel, do you enjoy it? Okay, why do you like it? More than the, you know, these bourgeoisie terms. And I've been trying to do some level two WSET. Kathy Matson, who runs it here, has, has allowed me to attend some of the lectures. But I don't think teaching really comes natural to me, the classroom teaching. I'm a teacher by what I do, where I go, and what I say. I think you're right. I think you are. The film's called Blind Ambition. Yeah, lots of ambitions. Uh, I think one of the biggest ambition is to be uh, worldly regarded and respected like a Jancis Robinson MW. Oh, uh, go on. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think one of my ambitions when I'm really settled, I would really love to tackle the MW. The Master of Wine exam. Master of Wine, yeah. Just yeah. on a personal level and see where I can. And this is amongst us peers and, you know, uh, as a profession, uh, just like someone would attain to want to have a PhD. I think that's one of my ambitions. And the second of all is to really create a, a legacy business. You know, I want to be one of those yellowtail wines, Bigfoot wines of the world, Conchatoros of the world, and really change a lot of lives and open real meaningful change. And I don't, I don't aspire to be a rich person. I don't aspire to make a lot of money, but I feel the next chapter and level of what I want to do, money is the means to get there. So the more successful the brand becomes, the more I can channel uh, back and, and improve other people who aspire to be like me. Lovely. Thank you very, very much, Tinesh, and wish you the very best of luck on your two-month sales tour. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Since competing in the World Wine Tasting Championships, each of the four Somms have gone on to launch their own wine brands. Pardon's based in the Netherlands and makes Zimbabwe Austrian wine. Joseph makes Mosi and Tongai wines in South Africa. Malvin makes Mukanya Cape Fizz. And Tinashe makes the Kumusha range of South African wines. The movie Blind Ambition has been shown around the world, being voted the audience favourite in an impressive number of film festivals. 
You can watch it on Amazon Prime and Curzon Home Cinema. At chancesrobinson.com, we are incredibly proud of the part we played in helping the Zim Soms get to the World Wine Tasting Championships and drawing the attention of third man films in Australia to this very moving story. This podcast was created, hosted, and produced by Elaine Chacan Brown and me, Jancis Robinson. It's engineered and edited by Misha Stanton. Production assistance by Susan Castrava. Executive producers were Elaine Chacan Brown, Sam Dagamanjin for Recurrent, and me for jancisrobinson.com.